0: Salutations, All those other lovely forms of hello. Fair warning, this is the second episode in the Jack the Ripper series, so if you want to go in chronological order, please go listen to last week's episode if you haven't already, and then come back here. We will be patiently waiting for you with bated breath. Thank you. But otherwise, welcome back. And if you're here for the first time, welcome to Crime and Theory, a podcast dedicated to everything outside the parameters of normal. I am your host, Ashley. Also, I want to clear something up real quick. Aaron is not here. We are fine. Everything's fine. Don't assume. He just didn't want to do this anymore. And that's okay, because I am joined yet again this week with my lovely co-host, Jessica. Hi. If you, again, didn't listen to last week's episode, go listen. She's a delight. And if if you don't think she's a delight, you're wrong. There's only two answers here. You guys... Again, have Jess to thank for the whole reboot of this show, so be grateful to her. Thank you. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Last week we covered the lives and murders of Polly Nichols and Annie Chapman, and this week we're going to cover the famous double event and the death of Mary Kelly. Let's get started. Same as last week, guys, sources for this series are way too many in number, so just Google Jack the Ripper and give credit to the first three, maybe five pages. Just, just give credit to Google. You don't have just to give credit to the website. Just Google. Yeah. yeah. All of Google. <clears throat> first up in today's episode is Elizabeth Stride, a.k.a. Long Liz. These Again, nick- with the nicknames, yes. <laughs> and for the sake of saving on syllables here, say that five times fast, I'm just going to call her Liz. Liz was born Elizabeth Gustav's daughter. On November 27th, 1843, to Gustav Eriksson. So I get it. Elizabeth Gustav's daughter, Gustav's daughter to Gustav Eriksson, who apparently is Eric's son. Ah, I'm seeing <laughs> the pattern here. And Be- Beata, Bieta, I don't know, Carl's daughter. So she she is the daughter of Carl. Her parents were Swedish farmers living on a farm called Stora Tummelhead near Gothenburg. Stop I'm trying. Either, guys. Hey, you're doing better than me.
1: <laughs>
0: I'm <laughs> the one that can't even
1: pronounce. I'm gonna say it again. <laughs> How do you say it again? Am I cool? There <laughs> you
0: go. <laughs> I can't pronounce that to save my life. <laughs> so. Oh yes, from this point <laughs> forward, they are now called the Cocaine Five. <laughs> I swear
1: that's what I read the first
0: time. <laughs> <sighs> And contrary to what you're all probably believing now, neither one of us are consuming alcohol or drugs. No.
1: <laughs> Sober as can be, except for my Diet Coke. <laughs> my water
0: tastes like mm-hmm. some kind of melon. What's it called? <laughs> cantaloupe! I can't say C words either! See? It tastes See? like cantaloupe <laughs> juice. But yeah, it's Stora Tumulhead, I guess. T U M L E H E A D. Sounds good to me. We're gonna go with it. If I am wrong, I am so sorry to anybody who speaks that language, which is apparently Swedish. I'm so sorry. When Liz was sixteen or seventeen, so you know, childhood years, she had a childhood. She grew up. She was a kid. Yep. She probably did some farming stuff. Probably know? not, at least at first, till she could walk. <laughs>
1: I mean, she just came out of the womb. They <laughs> handed her a pitchfork. <laughs> Hey. Maybe. You gotta earn your keep around here. <laughs> it's like a
0: Disenchantment on Netflix where Bunty keeps having children. She says, if you're old enough to cry, you're old enough to work. <laughs> there you go. But at 16 or 17, she moved to Gothen- Gothenburg? Gothenburg City to work in domestic service to a man named Lars Olafsson, The son of Olaf. Not the son of man, an actual man named Olaf. <laughs> <laughs> And I don't really know how well that worked out for her, because by 1865, Liz was going through some hard times, and she was even registered by police as a quote-unquote prostitute. Mm. On April 21st, 1865, Liz gave birth to a baby girl who was sadly still born sleeping. Mm. And later that year, Liz was treated twice for venereal disease and infection. She did not have a lucky go of it, I guess you could say. In 1866, on February 7th to be exact, Liz applied for transfer from her hometown to the Swedish Parish of London. At some point, she was approved because by July, she was logged in the London Registry. The Registry also notes that she was unwed, which is fine. No judgment there. It's pretty uncertain as to why she went to London in the first place. She did have a lover later down the road by the name of Michael Kidney, And he kept changing his story, kind of, when he was interviewed as to why Liz went to London in the first place. He first said it was to see the country, and then he changed it to she came over as a domestic servant. So either way, and maybe that's why she became a domestic servant, to see the country. A man interviewed named Charles Preston corroborated... Oh, look, we have a Charles. He corroborated the maid story, saying that she moved from Sweden while in the service of a foreign gentleman. A few years later, down the road, in 1869, Liz married her husband, John Stride, on March 7th. Another John. If you weren't here for the last episode, take a shot every time you hear the name John. (laughs) She was actually 26 years old when she got married, much like the previous victim. She was not the youngest. She wasn't 16, 17 years old when she got married, because back in that day, that's when girls got married. The pair moved to East India Dock Road together and they went into business together as well. This sounds really cool what they did. They operated a coffee shop on Poplar at one location and moved just down the road to relocate it later. I just can you imagine running a coffee shop back in that day? No fancy lattes or anything. You actually had to make good coffee. Yeah. Amazing. No blenders, no syrups, no anything fancy. Just coffee. The good stuff. My life's blood. I'm pretty sure if Jack the Ripper came after me, I would not bleed red. I mean, black. All the caffeine? Yep. Oh, yeah. And it would specifically be Joffrey's coffee, because that's all I drink lately is Joffrey's <laughs> coffee. Disney ruined me. Fast forward six more years, and the business was taken over by a man named John Dale. Therefore, they were no longer business owners. By this point, Liz's husband said that Liz claimed to have given birth to nine children in total. And the thing is, is we can't verify that one way or another. But that is a big number of kids.
1: Did so they not live
0: with them? It's or not it's even not, that. They're, they they do did not exist. exist. At least not according to records. So there's no way to confirm this at all. Whether she had Wait, given birth that Six
1: years, non births. So, like, she'd have to have multiples.
0: Well, not just that. I think she was supposed she supposedly had children before she married her husband. Which is also kind of a big deal back then. Yeah, but remember she was working as a sex worker as well, <laughs> and of course, with sex comes pregnancy. I'm sorry, children. That's how this works.
1: Yeah, and how did nobody know she was actually pre- like that's like that. That's what is so weird to me because I understand like medical records, but there has to be like witness accounts, especially. But if with they her ran moving and... around so much, if she kept to herself, I mean that's true. But I was just thinking, like if you're running a coffee shop and. You're working. And I know the dress
0: styles back then, too. I don't know.
1: Yeah, because they
0: were designed to accommodate pregnancy as well as everyday fashion.
1: Yeah. Man, that's nine. Oh, my goodness. I (laughs)
0: don't think she did, though. And we'll get more into that in just a second. But we're going to fast forward three more years to 1878, one decade before her demise. And a saloon steamship called the Princess Alice crashed on the Thames, which sounds irrelevant, but I'm getting there. Between 600 and 700 people perished in this crash. Well, when Liz wound up going to ask for assistance, financial assistance, at the Swedish church that same year, she told them that the accident killed her husband and her children, and that even she herself had sustained an injury in the crash while trying, and apparently succeeding, to escape. However, Mr. John Kidney was still very much alive And he would stay that way for six more years until he died of heart disease in 1884. And again, still no record of these children.
1: I'm going to say, and he would have to know, like even if she didn't, like go in public, whatever, he would have to know. Right.
0: Also, we have record of her first child who was born still still sleeping. Yeah. Yeah. So
1: yeah, I don't know. I don't know.
0: I think that. Unless, unless maybe she had a miscarriage. That's what and... I'm thinking, is that maybe that was the case. She counted them as her children because she wanted to keep yeah, them, of course. Yeah. And that's quite possible. Yeah. It also could have messed with her psychologically to go through that much.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: Because therapy also was not a thing back then.
1: Right.
0: Somewhere between 1869 and 1878, Liz and John did split up. I know this is a nine-year time frame that they could have split, but that's all I've got. But a census did state that they were still living together as of 1881. Who knows? It's quite possible that she used this tragedy on the Thames to cover up her separation and to pull at the heartstrings of the church in order to get more money. The church clerk named Sven Olson spoke at the inquest saying that at the time, Liz had been in quote-unquote very poor circumstances. Anyway, after that, Liz managed to split her time between different workhouses as the previous two victims did. And lodging houses. For about a month, from December of 1881 to January of 1882, she was treated for bronchitis in the Whitechapel infirmary, and from there she went straight into the adjoining Whitechapel workhouse. Like many women of the time, Liz knew how to sew well, and she used her skills to supplement her income. See, with the case of Jack the Ripper, everybody just thinks, oh, well, they were all prostitutes. prostitutes. They were all sex workers. No, these women were very real women with lives who had talents and dreams and hopes. and
1: Yeah. And then they and they did what they had to do to just to survive. Exactly. So they had, you know, in the case of, it wasn't it Annie that did, you know, the flower, you know, she yep. had two different things, crocheting and all that to make some income. But unfortunately, it didn't make enough, so... The sex part, the sex worker part was just another way. Exactly.
0: Like, they weren't, they weren't just sex workers. And that's why I wanted to do these two episodes to give them some humanity because mm-hmm. it feels like every documentary you watch, there's no humanity left of these people. These are just victims.
1: Yeah. They're well, not and just it, victims, it is they're almost people. sometimes depends on the, one, the ones you watch. It's like they're asking for it because they were prostitutes. Right. You know, and it's And I like, definitely don't agree no, with that. No. These women were in the wrong place, wrong time. Yep. And really, so far, they've all had really, like, hard lives. Especially, at least from the start of adulthood, since we don't really know about their childhood, but at least in adulthood, like,
0: hard lives. And as far as we know, like, we don't know anything about their childhood. They could have suffered from abuse or trauma. Yeah. Yeah. We don't know. And Liz may have had something in common with Annie that we were just talking about. She may have resorted to sex work when times got tough. She would also borrow money from Michael Kidney, her husband. Liz had been living off and on with him at his home in Devonshire Street, and the pair had kind of a rocky relationship at best. Liz would go to lodging houses for many days or even weeks before going back to Michael. He had claimed that her leaving so much was due to her drinking vendors. So we have another person with alcoholism. And to kind of back this up, Liz appeared before the magistrate eight separate times for drunken disorderly within the last two years of her life. Holy moly. That's once every three months. That is crazy. However, her leaving may have also been due to domestic violence. To which I say, good Uh, on you for getting out. Yeah, which that couldn't have led to her alcoholism. That is very true. Liz charged Michael with assault in 1887, but the case was dropped when Liz didn't show up for court. I don't know why. there's There's always a reason why. We just don't know what it is. Now we're right around the corner from Liz Stride's death. From Wednesday, September 26th, to her death on the morning of the 30th of 1888, Liz had been staying at 32 Fowler, nope, (laughs) Liz had been staying at 32 Flower and Dean Street, a lodging house. A fellow lodger named Catherine Lane, that sounds like a movie star, Catherine Lane. Lane, yes, Later testified that Liz told her she had had words with Michael, and that was why she was staying there. She cleaned the rooms at the lodging house in order to make some money from the workhouse deputy, Elizabeth Tanner. On the day of her death, she cleaned two of the lodging rooms and made sixpence. At some point, a Dr. Thomas Bernardo entered the lodging house for a visit. He was known as a servant to the poor and had a doctor's background, obviously but was also a street minister. And when he got there, there was a group of women sitting in the kitchen. They all looked, quote-unquote, thoroughly frightened, and they were talking about the murders in Whitechapel. I can see why. They were probably it's terrified. Fine, yeah. It was right around the corner,
1: Yeah,
0: right in their own backyard. One woman was sitting at the table crying, quote, We're all up to no good. No one cares what becomes of us. Perhaps someone, some of us will be killed next, end quote. Hmm. Dr. Bernardo later identified Liz as one of those present in the conversation.
1: Irony in that are talking about it and then
0: it happens. You're to one, one of them. The, yeah. She left the home sometime that evening. There were two men who were not interviewed at the inquest, but they went to the paper with their story. A Jay Best and John, take a shot, Gardner <laughs> told the paper that they saw Liz about eleven PM just as they were entering a pub on Settle Street called the Bricklayer's Arms. They said she was in the company of a man who was about five foot five, with a thick black mustache and no beard. Also, let's think about the day and age and the geographical location. Five five was probably about average height. Five 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 six men weren't typically very tall back then. Oh. The mystery man was wearing a morning coat and a billycock hat, which looks like a bowler hat. Okay. They said he looked respectable. So it was pretty shocking to them that he was so shamelessly hugging and kissing Liz near the doorway of the pub. I mean, you do you. I'm not big into PDA, but you do you. Mm. The pair tried to get the mystery man to come into the pub with them for a drink, but he refused. This is the weird thing that happened. They turned to Liz and they said, quote, that's leather apron getting round you, end quote. After that, they said he that she was, quote, off like a shot, end quote, away from the pub. So I don't know if they were just trying to mess with her, saying, like, "Well, this could be Leather Apron, you know? 45 minutes later. I'm going to say,
1: but it is kind of like if that guy was, you know,
0: it's kind of, I wonder what he was feeling at the time. Like, how did you know? Like, (laughs) Like, did did the cinema thing happen where he just turned to them and that one bar of light just crosses his eyes? Yeah. And you know, it's him. 45 minutes later. William Marshall, oh we have William now, was standing on number sixty eight Burner Street between Christian and Boyd Streets at his own address. And across the street he saw a woman that he claimed was Liz talking to a man. Marshall said that this man was stout, probably about five foot six, and wearing a black cutaway coat, dark pants, and a cap, quote, like something a sailor would wear. End quote. He left his porch and walked by them only to hear the man say, quote, you would say anything but your prayers, end quote, at which the woman laughed. So it sounds like they were getting a little bit intimate over there. Marshall said that the man looked to be educated and he had the appearance of a clerk when he later spoke at the inquest. I don't, what does a clerk look like? No idea. (laughs) Uh, I don't know. (laughs) I can assume he looks like a man because it's 1888.
1: I mean, I guess maybe with some pants and a shirt like I mean, you would be a great crime witness. What was he wearing? <laughs> pants? <laughs> I think I mean, a shirt. I mean, maybe a jacket. Like, I mean, I guess maybe, like, because he said he looks like an educated man. What does an educated man look That's like? That's a very good question, so especially like the it's and age. Like, yeah, maybe it's just him trying to say, you know, he looked well off in a sense. Possibly. Like, you know.
0: Maybe, like, he too had money because I mean, college, yeah. yeah, fancy education. I'm gonna start saying that
1: he looked like you look like a clerk. <laughs> <laughs> Just I'm to randomly start telling people that
0: <laughs> you're gonna find some stranger in the story. You know, you look like, like a clerk. <laughs> good job, bud. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, while we're at it, let's just bring back all the old school stuff. I bite my thumb at you, sir. <laughs> oh, man. PC William Smith saw Liz with a man on Burner Street at 1225 a.m. across the street from International Working Men's Educational Club. Or... <laughs> I can't even say it. Like, you can't make a word out of this. You <laughs> 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 Can't. P.C. Smith said that the man had a dark complexion and a dark mustache wearing a cutaway coat and dark pants. Same outfit. as two witnesses whose testimonies line up. The man was carrying a parcel wrapped in newspaper and Smith also said that the man looked respectable, but apparently not like a clerk. <laughs> and both the man and the woman appeared to be sober. He also noted that she wore a rose on her jacket, which matched the one discovered on Liz's body after her death.
1: So more than likely it was her.
0: More than likely. Also, let's keep in mind that this man had a dark complexion.
1: Which didn't, somebody say like a foreigner was one of those. Also and, true, and, but and I'm
0: thinking about the immense amount of racism back in the day. I mean, we still have it today, yeah, yeah, but yeah. for a yeah. oh, white woman to be seen with a man but, with a dark complexion. Who but knows? is it but it
1: doesn't necessarily because of all the, the um migration that was going on at the yep. time, it could be it doesn't have to be necessarily black. It could no, be no, yeah, I was yeah, yeah. like a, a like highly a dense
0: Jewish community. community. Yeah. i wouldn't say russian russian people are pretty pale given their geographical location yeah sometime between 1240 and 1245 a dock worker named james brown was coming from i don't know if it's pronounced faircloth c-l-o-u-g-h because i know that like we say van gogh but british people say van gogh Gogh. i don't know and burner street and he also saw a man and a woman standing at the corner The man had his arm up against the wall and the woman had her back to the wet. So almost like he was like,
1: you know. Leaning over. Trying to be sexy. Oh, yeah. You
0: know. (laughs) Very, very romantic. (laughs) He only took a glance at the man, but he did note the long coat he was wearing. He heard the woman say the words, no, not tonight, some other night. This may have been a different couple because Brown didn't see the flower. But again. If he's over her...
1: It might be block, yeah.
0: Valid. But he didn't really get the... Like I said, he didn't really get the best look.
1: And he didn't know to look for a flight, you know what I mean? Yeah,
0: exactly. If you're not mm -hmm. looking for it and it's not blatantly obvious because it's obscured, how are you gonna know? You -hmm. can't know what you don't know. Exactly. And I am also, again, sorry. With a big case like this, there's tons of people. But we're about to have a new name. Enter the picture. Israel Schwartz. So I'm assuming... That this man is not John. (laughs) Yes. He had recently immigrated to London and spoke little English, and he just so happened to be turning onto Burner Street from Commercial Road around 1245 a.m. He was across the street from the gateway where Liz's body was later found, and he also saw a man and woman speaking nearby. He saw the man try to pull the woman into the street, but she was resisting. So the man threw the woman to the ground... And Schwartz went to the other side of the road. And when he crossed, he saw a man light up his pipe. Not the same man who threw the woman to the ground. A completely different man. Light up his pipe and heard the first man shout the word Lipsky. Schwartz kept on trucking down the road. Because I can only imagine someone new to town who didn't even really speak English. the language. That had to be scary. Mm. But the second man who lit up his pipe started following him. So Schwartz then started to book it. He just, he runs... Again, can't blame him. He wasn't quite sure if the two men actually knew each other or what, but he was able to ID Liz's body at the mortuary as the woman he saw. Hmm. Remember, this is 1245.
1: Well, you know, I, I keep wondering, brain. I understand why, you know, the women are up at this time just trying to make a little bit more extra money. Right. Why are all these men up? Like, I guess to give them a the little gotta... extra
0: money. <laughs> 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 I mean, yeah. Yeah. I gotta go to work tomorrow. Like, come on. <laughs> like, you're not wrong. Ugh. <sighs> I don't know where these men get this energy, but man, can I just have a fraction of it so where I don't need I, so much coffee? I'm about to say I don't even want to be
1: up past nine o'clock. I don't either. So like midnight, one o'clock. No, no, thank you. Listen,
0: no, thank you. We play D and D until the wee hours in the morning. I'm like, I'm too old for this. Yeah. <laughs> as much fun as I have, I'm like, no. I need a day to recoup if
1: I, if I stay up all day. I need like, a week to recover. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
0: The assaulter had been about five foot five, had dark hair, a small brown mustache. This all sounds like the same dude, five 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 six, six yeah, and they're all saying
1: uh, pants, long coat, you know, dark the mustache. mustache,
0: yep, Schwartz also said he had a full face and broad shoulders, which lined up with the description so far, and guess what the man was wearing the dark coat and pants. Yes. <laughs> At least he was wearing clothes, I guess, (laughs) right? Yeah. And he had a peaked cap as well, which, if I'm not mistaken, is a billycock? Is that what it's called? The hat that I said earlier that's like a ball? Yeah. Schwartz was not at the inquest of Liz's murder, though, so I don't know why. I mean, again, it was a day of anti-Semitism and disgust of foreigners, so Mm. maybe it had something to do with that. This is just speculation. Please don't jump on that and say this was definitely why. But it could have also been that police thought Schwartz may have seen another couple because Liz's body didn't have bruising to line up with her being thrown into the thrown mm. onto the ground. But then again, she was also probably wearing multiple layers. She probably had some cushion.
1: Yeah. I, who knows? And just because she was thrown to the ground doesn't, you know, depending on how you
0: catch yourself,
1: you know what I mean? Yeah, like, it doesn't and... mean there's
0: going to be bruises. Yep. It could also have been that the man shouting Lipsky could have implicated Jewish people in the murder and could have caused public backlash in the area. So I don't know if it was to say one person's skin or everybody's skin in this, but who knows? I love this woman's name coming up. Her name is Fanny Mortimer. <laughs> she sounds like she is going to solve a crime. Like yes. she is going to be the main character in a novel. She's going to solve a mystery and then bake cookies afterwards. She
1: should have solved this mystery.
0: Like, (laughs) one job, Fanny. One job. (laughs) 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 She was a nearby resident, and she supported the idea of it being a different couple on the street. Because she reported hearing a commotion outside at the Socialist Club and going out to investigate the noise. After hearing about Liz's demise, she questioned a young man and his sweetheart that were standing on a nearby corner. The pair said that, I mean, she's trying to solve a mystery. (laughs) 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 The the pair said that they heard nothing. And Mortimer was convinced that she had also seen the killer because the only man she passed on the street was coming from the direction of the socialist club. He was carrying a shiny black bag.
1: Doctor. I'm about to say, I finally got that. Finally, somebody's saying he's carrying a bag. Like, this is where the uterus
0: went. <laughs> yeah. However, mm. that man with the shiny black bag later went to the Lehman Street police station to report himself after reading Mortimer's account in the paper. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and then probably not. No. <laughs> His name was Leon Goldstein
1: that'd po- be funny if it really was him, though, and he's right? like throwing off police like I'm gonna
0: just yeah. I'm gonna play innocent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like And the police actually ruled him out as a suspect. So I mean if it was him, hey, smart did a move. Good job. Yeah. <laughs> I hate to give killers credit, but here we are. <laughs> Liz's murder was quite distinct among the canonical five for two reasons. There were no mutilations to her abdomen like the ones on the other four. And The cause of death was not strangulation. There were no strangulation marks on her body. And because there had been some criticism over how no second opinion was sought out in the autopsy of Annie Chapman, both Dr. Phillips, from the previous case, and Dr. Blackwell conducted Liz's autopsy. Found on Liz's person in the investigation were two pocket handkerchiefs, a symbol, because remember she could sew, and a piece of wool that was attached to a card. Which, that sounds like a fabric sample to me, yeah. but I don't know. A red flower was indeed found pinned to her dark jacket, and she was clutching a package of cashews. C-A-C-H-O-U-S. Not cashews, like the nut. nut. So, these cashews, or however you say it, they're a sweet-smelling lozenge used to mask bad breath. Which, I mean, dental hygiene was not the at best. its peak. Yeah, Makes sense. And especially if you're going to be up close and intimate, if you are indeed in sex work. It's a good thing to have. But these cashews were still in their package and not scattered all over like they would have been if she had been knocked to the ground. So that's another indicator that it may have been another couple. Doctors Phillips and Blackwell both agreed that the cause of death was loss of blood from a severed carotid artery. The gash on her throat was consistent with the wounds on the other two victims, which was a clean, deep knife wound of about six inches that moved from left to right. Strangely enough, there was no blood spatter that would have told investigators that she was killed while standing up. So, I mean, Mm. she could have been intimate and you could have right in the middle. PC lamb stated in his testimony that she looked as if she had been gently laid down. Dr. Phillips claimed there was not a trace of malt liquor or anesthetics or narcotics in Liz's stomach. So she was sober as a judge. The killer didn't drug her either, which is weird because she apparently went down without a fight that's again i think that's, that he poses a john
1: yeah i think he has to but in all the things in all the cases so far the one thing that they have not said was that any of them actually had had sexual relations you know what i mean that's true so, i mean clearly they, they had to is, have earned
0: the money so they- well yeah but,
1: but not but but not with him like you know what i mean like there is no evidence that just right that you know what i mean but, I mean, it was, it's hard to pinpoint. Yeah. You know? I mean, especially
0: because they didn't have the hygiene that they, that we yeah. have now. And if. I mean, if you are going, the one had already, you know. If you're going large, back to back to back to back. Yeah, because
1: the one had, what, like four, I think, or something. Yeah, So, it's like, yeah, like.
0: And without true. DNA, you couldn't determine, mm-hmm. like,
1: whose it was. But I think it would be, I think it would be, like, beneficial in a lot of ways to actually know if he had, you know, if they had had, you know, relations with whoever is Jack the Ripper because because it goes into the theories of, you know, yeah, like... was he, he impotent? Yeah. Was it, you know, like, did he have sex? Does he have, like, mommy issues? You know, it's like, what it kind of gets more that I think they would have had a better suspect list. I agree. Had they been able to determine, did Jack the Ripper actually rape these women? Right, and even or, if they couldn't
0: back then, yeah. we could have someone like the BAU yeah. make up, not make up, but compile Mm. a profile yeah a better a clearer profile Profile. yeah dr blackwell said there was a check silk scarf around the neck the bow of which was turned to the left side and pulled tightly i formed the opinion that the murderer first took hold of the silk scarf at the back of it and then pulled the deceased backwards so came from behind grabbed her scarf pulled her her back, back Which I guess that... But I there really, was no signs of strangulation, but that could have shocked her enough to keep her from um, yeah.
1: screaming out or... And give her time to slick, because she's right. right up against him, you know?
0: Right. Then, yeah. Some people believe that the Ripper didn't kill Liz at all because her injuries were different from other victims. But it's also possible that the arrival of Louis Diemschutz, I guess, and his pony interrupted the killer's ritual, and he had to hurry and kill her. But... Of course, if you are a sadist and you have that, like, compulsion, he was probably compelled to find another victim to grant himself that sadistic relief. Yep. Liz took the longest to identify. She was ID'd by the end of the week and was laid to rest the next Saturday on October 6th at East London Cemetery, Plaistow, London, E13. There were no friends or family available to lay Liz to rest under, so the undertaker, Mr. Hawkes, paid for a small funeral with church funds.
1: Oh, she was
0: like to rest on sad. my birthday. I know.
1: I thought about that,
0: too. <laughs> I was also born on a Saturday. Coincidence? Absolutely.
1: <laughs> I think one of them, when I was reading one of them, uh, September 11th kept up. Pop- you know? Yeah. I was like, oh, that would be another reason for Carson to hate her birthday. <laughs> You're right.
0: <laughs> like. I mean. Her murder so tragic.
1: It is, but I think hers is the saddest, especially at the end when you had nobody there yes. with you. And, like, nobody came to even, like, honor your life. Because, I mean, at
0: least they had, the other two so far had friends and family to yeah. show up. and
1: At least be able to honor her and, and be able to remember her, you know. And, yeah. and this woman, she just didn't have anybody. It doesn't seem like she really had anybody for most of her life, really. Yeah, I mean, she left and... at 16
0: or 17 to yeah. force her own way and... It yep. just didn't pan out. But Liz's death was not the only one that kept police and medical examiners busy that night. Like you said, he had to have his release. Yep. Whether it was an actual sexual release or some kind of psychological release, I don't know. But release nonetheless. So on to victim number four, slash the second victim of the night. Catherine Eddowes, a.k.a. Kate Conway, a.k.a. Kate Kelly. These people had a lot of nicknames, and I'm here for it. Why don't we use nicknames anymore? beats me. And
1: now we have, like, common ones, like, Jess ash not like yeah you know to kit what was it kit kelly or like Kat, i was like that that is a cool nickname yeah
0: now it's just like Jess, not and here like kate conway yeah and kate kelly she was born in 1842 to george Edos, a tin plate worker and her mother katherine so i guess she was kind of like a junior but we don't really do juniors in female terms why don't we Why is it okay for a guy to name his son after him, and then he's just a junior, but a woman doesn't? I don't know, but I think,
1: like, because that's how it's pretty much always been, I do kind of think of juniors or seniors as just, like, a manly part of the name. That I'm like, I don't know if I would want, you know, my name to have a junior on it. I don't think I would,
0: but I would like for it to be an option. I mean, that's true. (laughs) That's true. She also had two sisters whose married names were Elizabeth Fisher and Eliza Gold. When she was roughly six years old, finally a childhood. When she was roughly six years old, Kate's family moved from the countryside to London, where she was educated at St. John's Charity School for the next six to seven years. In 1855, Kate's mother died. Or it's a theory anyway. Both of her parents may have actually died in 1851, but these dates aren't too relevant because at some point before adulthood, Kate was an orphan. She wound up moving to Bison Street in Wolverhampton where she attended Dowgate Charity School. When she was about 21 years old, Kate was still living in Wolverhampton, when she got wrapped up in a relationship with a man named Thomas Conway. Thomas was a military pensioner from the 18th Royal Irish Regiment, not a lying McLear pants. <laughs> the pair never did marry, but they did live together for about 20 years. And oh they had glory. three children together in 1865. You know, this is, this is like, it blows my mind that so
1: many of these women have lived, have lived with men, At that time. Yeah. That it wasn't, like, you know, because you always think about, like, marriage was a big deal and, like, Mm -hmm. you would be looked down upon. Yeah. You know, I know this was, like, a poor community in an area, but still, it kind of, like, blows my mind that these women have, like, lived with multiple men and some of them not their husbands. Isn't that wild? But good for them, though. Yeah, I mean, live your life.
0: Yeah, you don't have to get married. The three children they had together were born in 1865. 1868 and 1873. They had two boys and a girl. Mm. Other than this, not much is known of Kate and Thomas's lives together, but it is believed that they made their money in Birmingham selling cheap novels, as well as writing popular songs called gallows ballads. Okay. I want a morbid and macabre career. (laughs) Oh, wait. Mm. (laughs) When Kate was found, They noticed a tattoo on her arm reading the letters TC, which was actually believed to be Thomas's initials, which makes sense. Thomas Mm -hmm. Conway. And it came in real handy when it came time to ID her body. But let's talk about the fact that this is 1888 and she had a tattoo. tattoo. Yeah. I love her.
1: Yes. She's like a rebel. She doesn't want to, you know, get married. So she just lives with a man. And then they lived together for 20 years. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's a good, you know, long shot at this. It really is. Hey. Right. And she didn't let people, like, try to talk her in. Hey, I'm trying to get married. And you, and you get a tattoo. Oh, come on.
0: She was a woman ahead of her time, for real. Yes. In 1881, they did sadly split up. According to Annie Phillips, Kate and Thomas's only daughter, the split was entirely on account of her drinking habits. No surprise here.
1: I'm going to say this. Uh, so far, we're 4-4 four four with yep. the drinking. <laughs> Which is why, again, I think he actually targeted these
0: women. Yeah, and I know everybody says, well, it's because they were sex workers. Are you sure it's not because he understood they had a drinking habit and they would be easy prey? I'm gonna say, like, and most
1: of most of the time, it sounds like, especially a couple of them, they were they were drunk a lot. Yeah. So he wouldn't be able to account if that they, they were gonna drink that night or not. So even if they didn't drink that night, they still all had like a drinking problem, like, which and pretty severe would have led one. To yeah. Sounds Not brain like,
0: damage, per se, but yeah. it would it's alter the mind. Response. Yeah, slower yeah.
1: response time.
0: Like, you know, all that. Exactly. So. Also, probably certain types of organ failure, which would slow you down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But Thomas Thomas was apparently a teetotaler, according to his daughter. So that's probably why they split. They were polar opposites. Thomas was like, no alcohol for me, thank you. And she was like, another glass, like, please. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Another round, bartender. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually, the conflict in the relationship got to be too much, and Kate moved out and into Cooney's Lodging House at 55 Flower and Dean Street. Remember we mentioned Flower and Dean? Yeah. Kate's daughter got married, and she literally spent multiple years packing up and moving around so as not to be found by her mom, who was Mm. someone who frequently would find her and ask her for money. Mm. Which, I mean, I get. Would you want to be used?
1: No. No, but that kind of Talks about how intense it was, though, if your daughter is purposely moving so much as for the mother not to find. To avoid you, yeah.
0: Like, it talks about... And I don't think it was just money, either, because... Probably not. It's, it, That's kind of an know. intense reaction just to Well, money. but it also it makes
1: you wonder, again, how bad was her alcohol problem was, you know? And, and again, it's like the money thing. Can, and then, you know, if you can't give me money, can you at least go buy my whatever she liked to drink? And, right. Or, you know, who knows how she acted when she was exactly. drunk, Exactly. She you could know? have very like, well been
0: belligerent. Yeah. We don't know. While staying at Cooney's, Kate met an Irishman named John Kelly who worked in the markets, mostly for one of the local fruit vendors. They stayed a couple for the next seven years until her death. So the woman a long, I'm going to say, she's a long-term person. Absolutely. Yeah, like She was not in it just for a fun yeah, time, you know? Yeah. While they also did not marry, she took his last name, and it was a pretty common practice for lower-class women at the time. If they were living with a man, just take his last name and mm. nobody will ask questions. And I know it seems to be common knowledge that the Ripper targeted sex workers, like I said, but Kate's friends and family swore up and down that she was not a sex worker. Mm -hmm. She would make her money from hawking and doing odd jobs around town to pay her way through life. The Cooney House deputy, Frederick Wilkinson, told police that he, quote, never knew of her being intimate with anyone but Kelly, end quote, and that she was usually home and in bed around nine or ten each evening. Sex workers tend to work throughout the night, and nine or ten seems pretty early, to be honest.
1: Yeah, you're you're not the prime time to make money. Exactly. This is around the time that families are I having mean, but dinner. But that and... kind of it kind of goes with the her the other ones. And I'm not trying to be disrespectful. It's like you kind of you can see and kind of see understand how their life went down that path where sex work was, you know. Right. So when you're with somebody for 20 years and then you doing your own thing, making your own money, you're with somebody for seven years, it's not like the same type of life the other ones had. You right. You know what I mean? Like circumstances. Right. So I could, I could totally see her not being a sex worker and just busting her butt for whatever she had to do, you know, but yeah. without doing the sex work part,
0: you right. know. I don't know. And kind of as a side note, her friends actually described her as intelligent, as an intelligent scholarly woman, but of fiery temperament. So yeah, she kind of flew off at the mouth sometimes, but she was very bright. Yeah. And the deputy of Cooney's, Frederick Wilkinson, said that she was a very jolly woman, always singing. Yeah. So it doesn't sound like, even though she probably had some hard times in life, her life doesn't seem as tragic.
1: No, and it, and it does seem like she... I think she was probably one of those women that had more of an optimist point of view. Yeah. life. Like, even though it might be hard and gloomy at times, she was able to still see some joy out of something.
0: Right. Late summer in England was a time where many of the country's poor would go to the countryside to find work collecting hops to be used by breweries. So, John Kelly and Catherine Eddowes did just that in 1888. They had done so for several years by this point, but the two had very little success that year and they had to kind of hoof it back to London because they couldn't afford a ride. While on the road, they met a man and a woman. The woman named Emily Burrell offered Kate a pawn ticket that she had for a flannel shirt. This ticket would later be found on Catherine's body in Meter Square, I think. M-I-T-R-E. I think it's Meter Square. be MITRE. On September 29th, John and Catherine had finally arrived back in London, but the pair still had no money. So John managed to earn six D. uh, I'm gonna just gonna assume it's six pence, so they could attain lodging for the night. And since a bed at Cooney's was 4D, Kate said that she would go take the remaining two and she would just go sleep in the casual ward that night. Because they didn't have enough for two beds, obviously, or for a room together. The superintendent of the casual ward was interviewed. The superintendent revealed that Kate had said, I have come back to earn the reward offered for the apprehension of the Whitechapel murderer. I think I know him. Oh, man. He warned her to watch out or the killer might get her too. To which she replied, Oh, no fear of that.
1: Dang. See, again, ballsy lady.
0: I like her. I'm like, what if she
1: actually didn't know who it was?
0: That would be wild. It says that this encounter may actually be a fabrication because nobody could corroborate this encounter. However, it doesn't say that there was anybody else nearby. So, I mean. Yeah. But if that encounter did happen, was she killed because she knew too much?
1: Yeah. And then it also kind of paints what type of circle this person would have had to be in on at least a frequent basis. You yeah. know what I mean?
0: To be known like that. Yeah. Later that morning, Kate was kicked out of the casual ward for some reason. I don't know what, but she never returned. John and Catherine met up at 8 a.m. near Cooney's, and Kate took a pair of John's boots to a pawnbroker on Church Street. She pawned the boots under the pseudonym Jane Kelly for the price of a meal. Frederick Wilkinson, the guy I mentioned earlier, saw Kate and her partner later that day sometime between 10 and 11 a.m. having breakfast in Cooney's kitchen. So, So far with Catherine, we have a much more vivid timeline. Yeah. Kate told John that she would try to get the money from Annie, her daughter, but John was worried about them parting ways because of the killer. Makes sense. He reminded her of this, but they separated anyways in Houndstitch, and she said that she would be home no later than four that afternoon, saying... Don't you fear for me? I'll take care of myself, and I shan't fall into his hands. Those were her famous last words to him. Around eight is
1: crazy, <laughs> right? <laughs>
0: mm. This feels like movie script right here. This I mean, is just yeah, because it's just so like intense. you have you
1: have this character. Well, I mean, this person, if in a right. movie, a character. That you always have in something like this when it comes to, like, a serial... There's always somebody who's like, nothing's gonna happen to me. Oh, I already figured it out. I'll go check out that noise. Yeah, like, you know, and for this this woman to say, oh, I already know who it is. The only thing that I will say about that, if that was the truth, Mm -hmm. is why she wouldn't have
0: said anything. Or gone to police. Yeah, because... Unless she wanted evidence.
1: I mean, but again, like, they were so desperate for a suspect... That I think they would have listened to anybody, especially if you can at least just say, you know, why do you think it's so-and-so? And And give one good reason. Right. I think the police would have, like, looked, but her not being a sex worker, and like, it all kind of makes sense in a way, because if it is true, she did say it, she didn't know. Mm -hmm. Everybody else knew she wasn't a sex worker, supposedly, you know. Right. That he was only going out for sex workers. So, even though his stuff was interrupted with Elizabeth... And he he needed that fix. Maybe it's like, hey, okay, well, this is why she has to die because she does know too much, right? And again, though, wouldn't you tell your? She would have told John Kelly, yeah, because like, like if you knew, other... yeah, if you knew, when you tell your husband? Like you would tell absolutely, her, yeah. I
0: don't know. Matter of fact, I'd be like, will you come with me to the cops? Because I have anxiety. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I'm not going out by myself. We'll just, I don't care. No, I like, would I would get a whole army of people. I'd, I'd call up you. I'd call up yeah, my, like other friends and just be like, let's go to the cops. Let's yes, the cops. no, and, like. Mm, can't do this by myself.
1: To the ballsy lady.
0: You're right. I mean, what other woman in 1888 would have gotten a tattoo like that? I'm just saying. Yeah. It's so cool. Around 8.30 p.m. on the 29th. City PC Lewis Robinson saw a crowd gathered around 29 Aldgate Street. When he approached, he saw a woman laying there on the ground in the center of the group of people. Not to worry yet, she was just passed out. She was very drunk. Robinson enlisted the help of City PC George Simmons to help get her to her feet. As you can guess, it's Catherine. And drag her to Bishopsgate Police Station. The two policemen brought her in about 15 minutes later. Sergeant James Byfield was registering inmates at the time. And when Byfield asked the woman her name, she told him it was nothing. (laughs) Ma'am, what's your name? Nothing. (laughs) Nothing. (laughs) So five minutes past that, she was in a cell where she just passed out. She was so drunk. P.C. George Hutt had the job that night to keep his eye on the inmates and passed her cell many times while she slept. She was fine. At 12.15 a.m., P.C. Hutt heard this mystery woman, woman named Nothing, singing softly to herself in the cell. Remember, she always had a song. A few minutes later, she called out to ask when she would be released. He says, when you're capable of taking care of yourself. (sighs) She said, I can do that now. Several minutes later, they finished processing her, and she changed her name from nothing to Marianne Kelly of 6 Fashion Street. Strange that she gave the name of the fifth canonical victim. Um, yeah.
1: And what the funny thing is, too, is when she did the pawn shop, she changed her name to Jane Kelly.
0: Yeah. And then, like, yeah. You're right. She was ready to be released by 1 a.m. What time is it, she asked Hutt. Too late for you to get anything to drink, he said. I kind of like his answer. Them. I just smart. <laughs> You're right. Smart mouth answer. And to any family and friends listening, I am about to say a word that I don't normally say. I'm sorry. I'm literally quoting here. I shall get a damn fine hiding when I get home, <laughs> she said. And serve you right. You had no right to get drunk. Hut admonished. <laughs> <laughs> she was like, man, he's gonna be so mad. When she exited, she walked in the opposite direction of Cooney's and instead headed back toward Aldgate High Street where she had been discovered earlier. Around 1 a.m., Joseph Lowland, I assume, who was a commercial traveler, Joseph Hyam Levy, a butcher, and Harry Harris. <laughs> Harry Harris? <laughs> and I'm like, How did your parents feel about you, Harry Harris? I need to know. <laughs> He was a furniture <laughs> dealer. They were walking nearby. They were heading down Duke Street from the Imperial Club. and Three men passed by a couple walking in the opposite direction. Harris didn't notice them in the slightest, and Levy took little note of them, other than they were both kind of shabby looking. Lowland, or however you say his name, had the best memory of the couple's appearance. He couldn't see the woman's face, but he did recognize her clothes. He thought the man had looked to be about 30 years old, five foot seven, mustache, wearing a loose-fitting salt-and-pepper jacket and a red handkerchief around his neck. Meter Square was a 10-minute walk from Bishopsgate Station. Kate was found murdered there by P.C. Watkins at 1.45 a.m. At 2 a.m., Dr. Frederick Gordon Brown arrived at Meter Square to perform the on-site post-mortem and later continuing the autopsy at the Golden Lane Mortuary 12 hours later. Listen, people have to sleep, I get it. That was kind of late. Not everybody has to get up at three in the morning to go be a Carter. (laughs) Kate's body had the most damage out of all of the victims. Her throat had been cut about six to seven inches long. That's consistent from left to right. And she had been disemboweled. So far, so good. Not good, but consistent. Yeah. The large vessels on the left side of her neck were totally severed. Her intestines had been placed over her right shoulder. Same as correct Annie's. Yeah. The killer made a mistake this time, though. Remember when I told you in the last episode that um, there was one victim with intestines who had been cut? Yeah. The killer nicked Kate's intestines, which in turn smeared some fecal matter up on the space behind her shoulder. So on the ground, I guess. About two feet of intestines had been detached from the body, though, and placed between her body and her left arm. So mm-hmm. kind of tucked, like, I guess. Nichols and Chapman had pretty organized and straight cuts to their stomach, but Kate's had been more erratically done, which I guess would if make he sense. Was, yeah, because if he didn't
1: get to finish with Elizabeth, he's like, almost like Jones and a, a way right. to say it, like, he's going to make mistakes It was time. desperation.
0: Yeah. She was also the first to have her face mutilated by the Ripper. And I know it's been slightly graphic so far, and it's about to get worse. You've been warned. A triangular flap of flesh was peeled from each cheek with the tips of the triangles pointing toward the eyes. Some have said it looked like arrows. There were also cuts made to her eyelids, including one that was about one and a half inches long to her left eye. Dr. Brown found that Kate's right kidney was pale, or bloodless with slight congestion of the base of the pyramids, and it was concluded that she was suffering from something called Bright's disease. Today... Bright's disease is an antiquated term that is now either called acute or chronic nephritis or inflammation of the kidney. The left kidney, however, was removed and was not recovered from inside or around Kate's body.
1: Another trophy.
0: Guess what else was missing?
1: Her uterus.
0: Her uterus. What is with him in these uteruses? I Her don't Her uteri, know. I guess, is what it like. <laughs> like oh I wish gosh. I knew. The uterus had also been cut in a horizontal fashion and had been removed all but for a stump one quarter of an inch long. My question is, did the ovaries go with it? I, I don't know why that's my first thought.
1: Well, that kind of makes sense, because why give somebody... If you're taking a uterus and the whole, one of the theories was to give it, you know, to use it, like, you know, whatever. Yeah. You, you, you have to have the
0: ovaries to go, you know what I mean? I mean, if like, you're doing it for reproductive value, yeah. yeah. But if you're just doing it for, say, dissection in medical school, not necessarily,
1: I guess. Well, not necessarily, but I guess... I guess
0: I just don't understand the part,
1: the, the thing of taking it. Like, I
0: No, know. me either. <laughs> like, I mean, listen, I will mm-hmm. freely give mine if anybody wants it, but no thanks. Um, to
1: I wish method. they would have taken mine.
0: <laughs> i like, I told them to take everything. They didn't listen. No. Curse me. <laughs> Dr. Brown took note that the murder was only committed by the hands of one person. And this person had severed Kate's throat so suddenly that it was next to impossible for her to have cried out. And whoever had removed her kidney more than likely had some sort of knowledge of where the kidney was located in order to remove it in the dark and rather quickly. Which, again, further fuels the idea that this person had medical knowledge. Yeah, I mean, they have to. Especially, like, if if they're removing those
1: things, like, precisely, you know, and, and all that. Like, you have to. But I will say... Going back to the thing of her saying that she knew who the killer was, mm-hmm. because it was so much more done to her, and even, like, just the face mutilation part of it as well, it kind of would make sense that he would do it to her. Because if he... If, Intimate if she, knowledge. Yeah, if... if If he overheard her saying or thought that, hey, this person actually knows who I am, then they already had to have some sort of relationship, whether a friendship, whether an acquaintance, you know, shit, like something like that. Right. That he would hurt her more because it's almost like you're the one who did this. You're the one who's making me do this to you. Right. It, and... it feels
0: so intimate. And to yeah. be that close to someone's face, because yeah. that, like you look into their eyes, it's, I don't know. It just yeah. it feels very intimate. Yeah. Dr. Brown is like us. He said he had no clue why somebody would have taken body parts with them. He didn't get it either. Mm-hmm. That reason was possibly revealed on October 16th when George Lusk, head of the White Chapel Vigilance Committee, received a package containing a kidney. It appeared mm-hmm. to be human and was preserved in spirits. Hmm. The kidney was sent to Lusk in accompaniment to the From Hell letter that we will cover next episode. A one Major Smith claimed later on that the kidney had also shown signs of Bright's disease, but Metropolitan Police at the time made memos that denied this and said that the kidney could have come from somewhere else. So, it could have been a hoax from, like, a medical student. Yeah. Who knows? For the inquiry, Metropolitan Police and City of London Police joined together and found some evidence in the surrounding area of the path that the Ripper may have taken. At 3 a.m., soon after Dr. Brown came to examine Kate's body, there was a piece of fabric covered with blood and fecal matter lying in a passageway near Golston Street in Whitechapel. This fabric matched a piece of missing apron that Kate was wearing, which made it seem like after killing her, the Ripper headed back into Whitechapel. Bolston Street was only a 15-minute walk from Meter Street, or Meter Square. And, I mean, let's think about it. If he picked up the pace, the Ripper could have easily gotten back in less than 15.
1: Yeah, but again, especially if this time fecal matter was on it, I mean, even, I I guess for me, I just don't understand how nobody saw him. You're you're telling me, like, he, like, nobody, nobody happens upon these murders, even though he does do them fast, don't get me wrong, right. especially for the amount of damage that he, does, he right. does. So during that time of the murder, then afterwards, there's nobody has ever found anything where he's cleaned up at the scene. Right. So you're walking around... With this blood all over you, these organs everywhere, and now fecal matter on you. And let's be honest, fecal matter stinks. Exactly. And nobody, like, sees anything. It's, it's so It's just bizarre. so weird. Because it, 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 it's so weird how they can find these people who see these victims beforehand. Right. And maybe even with Jack the Ripper, if, you know, in a lot of these cases. But nobody sees anything afterwards. Right. And so the body's found, but then he's gone. And again, how are you gone
0: so fast? I mean, clearly people are out in about 15 minutes prior, but nobody's out at the time of. Yeah, it's... each time. Somebody had to have seen something. They just were probably scared, to be honest.
1: Yeah, or or maybe they, they did see something, they just didn't put it together, you know. I just, because I, I, I don't, I mean, I guess maybe he took off his, I can I can see if he took off his coat beforehand, and then when he was done, put it back on, so that could conceal some of, like, the blood or, you know, stuff right. like that. Right. But I just, I don't know. Even then, to hold it shut like that, I... Again, kind of suspicious, but then and again, and then you have to carry the organs in something. And so if you have a bag, are you carrying it like, the, you know well, what I mean? Well, I mean, a lot like, of cloaks did have inner
0: pockets, so maybe that?
1: I mean, I the mean, organs are kind of smaller yeah, than yeah, we that's think. true, but I don't know.
0: Police found some writing on the wall above the place where the fabric was found, and it was written in chalk, and it said, quote, the Jews, spelled J-U-W-E-S, are the men that Will not be blamed for nothing. Quote. Police didn't really pursue the whole making the writing public knowledge and incorporating it into the investigation because this area was pretty well populated by the Jewish community, and the last thing they wanted was to cause any issues due to anti Semitism or what could have been seen as anti Semitism. Kate's funeral brought the entire city out to watch. The procession from Golden Lane Mortuary passed along Mile End Road through Bow or Bow and Stratford Streets. A large crowd was waiting at the gates of the cemetery, but the gates were shut to keep the masses out. You can kind of tell they lived in a day and age without modern entertainment because this was entertainment. Entertainment. Although here we are. We also find this entertainment, so... Not much has changed. No, (laughs) we just... Pursue it differently. Yeah. Everybody's just morbidly curious. Let's just be honest about ourselves. Yeah. Only those closest to Kate were allowed in for the graveside service. Those in attendance included Annie Phillips, her daughter, Kate's sisters Eliza Gold and Elizabeth Fisher, Emma Eddowes, and John Kelly. She was buried only a few graves away from Polly Nichols. They're both located in square 318 of the City of London Cemetery at Manor Park Cemetery. And here we are the last murder.
1: Canonically. I do find it funny, wouldn't it be ironic if all these women actually knew each other? Even just like, because it's this very small area. That's true. And they're kind of, you know, crossing the same streets, going to the same places. Like, well, that, even if they just pass each other or it's like, hey, good morning, I know your face type deal. Not right. necessarily, like, friends. I'm That's sure at some point they like, all probably passed to, one another. Yeah. It's so crazy and ironic just to, like, think of this and it's like, ugh.
0: Right. And victim number five, Mary Jane Kelly. I know some experts believe that there were other victims before Polly after Mary, but these five, of course, have the most consistent methods of killing. if you want to know more about any of the other victims, please just Google it because there are like two or three more episodes in this series and I still won't be able to touch on all of it. There's just no way. Anyway, Mary Jane Kelly, a.k.a. Mary Jeanette Kelly, a.k.a. Ginger, a.k.a. Fair Emma, a.k.a. Black Mary... (laughs) like Black Mary, in the most, <laughs> yeah, it seems dark and mysterious. Yeah, most of what's known of Mary's life came from her partner Joseph Barnett, and that story was solely based on what Mary herself had told him. Amber Heard's lawyer would have a field day with this case, hearsay. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
1: <sighs>
0: objection. I'm gonna
1: say he'd probably object his own question again. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like...
0: <sighs> so, this whole life story of hers had slash has areas that don't quite add up, but that's okay. We can still kind of get a decent picture of who she was. Mary was born in Ireland, but she spent most of her early years living in Wales. Her father, John Kelly, was an iron worker. Take a shot.
1: <laughs> this is like, I'm really wanting to go back and like count up all these Johns, and I'm like, no wonder they all call, they call Dear John letters and like Johns for prostitutes and Everybody's all that. Everybody's named John. John. Funny thing is, I don't think we've heard one Smith I don't see how John Smith, you know. Yeah, how have we not had a John
0: Smith? She told Joseph that she had either six or seven siblings. But given the knowledge that we do have, we can't really confirm that. According to landlord John McCarthy, he said, again. (laughs) It's a good thing we ain't taking
1: shots, because by this time, we'd be
0: done. (laughs) We'd be dead. He said that in the time that Kelly lived in Miller's Court, which is where she lived at the time of her death, she had only received one letter from her mom, but that was as far as correspondence with her family went. Both Joseph Barnett and Mrs. Carthy, not McCarthy or Carty, I don't know, who was a former landlady of Mary's, hinted that her family had actually been pretty well off. That's also, this is completely different because no one else came from a very wealthy family. Carthy also said that Mary was, quote, an excellent scholar and an artist of no mean degree, end quote. In 1879, Mary was 16, which also made her the youngest. youngest. And at 16, she got married to a collier named Davies. They were married for only about three years before Davies was killed in a coal mine explosion. Oh, man. She didn't get divorced.
1: I mean, that is
0: true. It's unfortunate either way. Like, it's sad, but... Yeah.
1: Because again, this has he just stayed alive, yeah, if he had stayed alive, would she be where at she's that? at? Yeah,
0: right. Yeah. And I, I'm not saying anything about getting divorced. There's nothing, yeah, wrong with that, right? Yeah, I'm just saying this is an inconsistency with the rest of the, the,
1: the other. Although, the, the four.
0: The, although one of them never got married at all. That's true. But That's she true. did split with her partner. He did not die. Yeah. She was about 19 at the time, obviously, and an adult by now. So instead of returning home, Mary moved to Cardiff to live with a cousin. That was when she turned to sex work. Apparently, she only spent a short time in Cardiff, though, and much of that short time was spent ill and in an infirmary. In 1884, she moved to London, and she may have stayed in a charitable house, the Providence Row Night Refuge, and she worked as a charwoman. I, I think that means... That she would clean, like, homes, offices, that sort of thing. Not long after, she left this place, too, and moved into a house in the West End. There, Mary lived and worked in a high-class brothel, which was run by a French woman. It's said that this was when Mary added some exoticism to her name by changing Mary Kelly to Marie Jeanette. Mm -hmm. Sorry for the poor French accent, guys. (gasps) She told Joseph that she had often ridden in a carriage and that at one point she had even been taken to Paris. But unlike those of us who have never been and dream of going one day, she apparently did not care for Paris at all because she returned to London after only two weeks.
1: I think you'd have more better luck in Paris.
0: <laughs> you I mean,
1: think? who doesn't want to go to Paris?
0: Alright? I mean, did she not enjoy the music? What's happening here? Also, they're known for white. Yeah, like well, so far we haven't heard that she's an alcoholic. That's yet. also true. That's also so true. Maybe... I don't know that she was. But I it's been a while since I did the research, so let's find mm. out. Then she moved to the East End on Saint George's Street, and she was evicted pretty quickly for drinking too much. we no. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, five for five here. <laughs> yeah. mm. and also possibly using other things to intoxicate herself. Mm. I'm going to assume something like opium, probably that was big in the day. Yeah, and that was when Mary moved into Missus Carthy's home. Mrs. Carthy was possibly a madam because Joseph referred to her as a, to her home as a bad house. So it's possible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And after this, she moved to Cooley's Lodging House in Thrall Street, Spitalfields, around the end of 1886. On Good Friday, April 8th, 1887, Joseph Barnett entered Mary's life. They met on Commercial Street and then went out for a drink, agreeing to meet the next day they did. They hit it off. Joseph and Mary both came from Irish parents, but he was born in London in 1858. He was a laborer on the docks, and he worked as a market porter for Billingsgate Fish Market. Must mm-hmm. had a good protein diet. Yeah. That we were talking about earlier. <laughs> After only meeting twice, the two decided to move in together. Oh, wow. I know. They move
1: faster than I do. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, was it quick? Yeah. But, I mean, when you know, you know. Yeah. As a couple, they first lived on George Street, then Dorset Street. They were evicted for not paying rent and being drunk. The Thames Magistrate Court
1: was <laughs> well, so a wonderful couple made for each other. <laughs>
0: I mean, to be honest, though, it's always portrayed as, well, they were all sex workers, and that's why they were targeted. They were all also alcoholics. Could that not be why? Yeah. But the Thames Magistrate Court wound up fining Mary for being drunk and disorderly on September 19th, 1888. That's my cousin Megan's birthday, not the 1888 part. She's not that old. (laughs) (laughs) She was born in 2000. (laughs) The two had moved twice more before August of 1888. And during that time, Mary had been working odd jobs. Joseph wound up losing his job, so Mary resorted back to sex work so they could make ends meet. Joseph was not too happy with this choice. I mean, when you're in a committed relationship, I'm gonna say I, I don't it.
1: think. Yeah, I don't think anybody wants their significant other to resort and, to sex work. Yeah, and even if it's not, you know, necessarily sexy, it's, trying, it's still like acts of, you know, yeah, like, yeah. I don't and think
0: you're putting your body in someone else's hands when you've committed yourself to this one, one person. person. I yeah. get it. Yeah. By fall of 1888, Mary and Joseph's relationship was straining from the way of their financial situation. And Mary's sex work against the wishes of Joseph. She kept on, even though he was saying, please don't. stop. Yeah. Yeah. Because of the Ripper murders, Mary started allowing some other sex workers with nowhere to go to stay with them in Miller's court. And Joseph later said, quote, She only let them because she was good-hearted and did not like to refuse them shelter on cold, bitter nights. We lived comfortably until Marie allowed a prostitute named Julia to sleep in the same room. I objected, and Mrs. Harvey afterwards came and stayed there. I left and took lodgings elsewhere. And this was stated at the inquest. Mary's upstairs neighbor, Elizabeth Prater, reported that on October 30th of that year, she heard Mary and Joseph argue. He left Mary to go live at Mrs. Bueller, Buller's boarding house, and Mary had been drunk, and she had broken three of the window panes that looked out on the courtyard. Julia Venturney of number... One, I think Miller's court said that Joseph was known to have treated Mary very well and he would give her money whenever he could, even after he left. Mm. He didn't like her sex work and he didn't want her to live that way, but he visited her every single day until the evening of November 8th. It sounds like he loved her. He, he just did. wasn't, he, he just couldn't agree. Yeah. Yeah. Mary kept allowing other women, including this Julia and Mrs. Harvey, to stay with her. Mrs. Harvey stayed there until she found lodging on Dorset Street on November 7th, so the day before. On November 8th, Joseph visited Mary at 7 p.m. and left after only a 45-minute visit. But the two did part on good terms. They did not argue that day. And Joseph saw next saw her when he identified her body. So this was Man. the last time that he ever saw her. At least they parted on good terms. He didn't have to carry around that guilt. Yeah. And he could only do so, he could only identify her, by her eyes and her hair. When I say it gets worse, I mean it. Not only was Mary kind to these women, she seemed to also be very popular. The people of Whitechapel knew her pretty well, actually. So you know how you said, I wonder if they ever crossed they probably, paths. Yeah. It's possible. Detective Constable Walter Jew said that she was rarely seen alone. She was usually seen with a whole entourage of other women or at least arm in arm with two or three of her friends. She always wore her signature white apron, and, according to the accounts of those who knew her, Mary was the most attractive of the victims. It's not really relevant, but I just wanted to report yeah. on what's written. She was about five foot seven, blonde hair, blue eyes, fair-skinned, and only about twenty-five at the time of her death. On November ninth, John Jack McCarthy needed to pay Mary a visit. She was pretty behind on her rent, six weeks, to be exact which is pretty far behind. I am going to
1: say, (laughs) he's trying to pay a visit. (laughs) Yeah.
0: And he couldn't, of course, let it keep happening. He's running a business here. And let me just kind of set up the scene a little bit. Number 13, Miller's Court, Mary's room, was a converted bedroom from 26 Dorset Street, which opened to the street just beyond the courtyard. There was a passageway from Dorset Street to Miller's Court that led to Mary's room, which had a door on one side and two windows around the corner from the door. The same two that she broke is very basic. Other apartments lined the rest of the courtyard and there was nothing else inside except maybe a dustbin and a water pump. Very basic. Anyway, McCarthy, being a landlord, had an underling. So he sent his shop assistant, Thomas Bowyer, to collect the payment for him. Because why not? I mean, why not? Bowyer agrees and he goes to collect the rent. He goes, knock, 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 nothing. Knock, knock, knock again, nothing. So he goes around the corner of the yard to see that a couple of window panes were broken, which we already knew about. And he reaches his arm through the broken glass and pushes aside the curtain so he could see inside see if Mary was home or not. Sounds a little creepy, but I kind of get it. Yeah. At first, he sees what he thinks are two lumps of meat sitting on the bedside table, which is odd. Why would you keep meat on a bedside Mm -hmm. table? Mm -hmm. He goes back to Mr. McCarthy and Mr. McCarthy accompanies him back to the scene. They get there. And it's about to get way, way worse. I keep saying it, but I don't think y'all will believe me. Mary's body is bloody and mangled and nearly unrecognizable. Parts of her were strewn about the bed, which was soaked in blood. Mm. McCarthy sends Bowyer, of course he did, to fetch a constable because, clearly, it's a crime scene now. Bowyer found Inspector Walter Beck and Detective Walter Dew having, (laughs) having a conversation with each other. On commercial street those two men sent for inspector aberline who was in charge of the ripper case at the time aberline arrived at 11:30 a.m and dr george bagster phillips the police surgeon who also responded to the annie chapman scene arrived around the same time the officer and medical investigator were told to just wait around and basically twiddle their thumbs until two police hounds could be brought to the scene and this was like a super new method at the time But Scotland Yard wanted to do this to show, you know, how seriously people were taking these crimes. I get it. But here's the thing. When you get to a crime scene, time is of the essence, right? They wound up waiting two whole hours for the hounds. That never showed. Oh my goodness. There was some kind of issue with communication there. And that's the downside to a world before cell phones. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, that and horrible social injustices toward people of color and women. But that's, you know, beside the point, apparently. (laughs) What happened was the dog's owner had reclaimed the dogs from police use when he found out that he would not be compensated.
1: Uh-huh. I mean, I, I, mean, I kind of get it yeah. because it's like, why, you know, why should I just let you guys come get them whenever you want and when you think you need them and I don't get paid for it. I mean, right, but
0: it was a person's life. I mean, you know? yeah, it just,
1: it's, it's hand in hand. Yeah. yeah.
0: Anyway, so police just wait and wait. And wait oh until Superintendent Arnold arrived on the scene at 1.30 p.m. He ordered the door to be broken down, finally. And Mr. McCarthy used a pickaxe to chop the door down. Here's Johnny, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Here's Johnny.
1: <laughs> but, and that sounds so like a bad idea anyways, because... You don't know what you're walking into. Like, you can only see it from so far. You know what I mean? That's also very true. And so you're sitting here hacking out a daggone door. And, and it's going wood, inward. Yes. And you don't know what's going to be contaminated Pirancy. that way. Yeah.
0: But, I mean, that's with a modern Ugh. mind of, like, police yeah. forensics and all of yeah. that. And when police entered the room, there was a fire still burning in the fireplace. So, it, I he, don't he know made, He it. made
1: a good fire then. Apparently.
0: <laughs> her clothes were neatly folded and laid with her boots on a chair in front of the fireplace. And to be honest, she was pretty naked aside from wearing a chemise. And she was lying in the middle of the bed. The bed was flush against the wall, just to give you an idea of how this apartment was laid out. She was inclined slightly to the left side of the bed, and her head was turned, resting on her left cheek. Mary's right arm had been partially disconnected from the torso, and her legs were spread and placed at right angles. Dr. Bond, Thomas Bond... Sorry. I mean, I kind of
1: do. Come on.
0: I mean, it's even British. Come on. It would have been so
1: much better if his name was James Vaughn. You're correct. I mean, I'm not going to lie.
0: Or John at this point. Just to Take another shot. He was the, he was one of the attending police surgeons and he stated at the inquest, quote, The whole surface area of her abdomen and thighs was removed and the abdominal cavity emptied of its viscera. The breasts were cut off, the arms mutilated by several jagged wounds, and the face hacked beyond recognition of the features. The tissue of the neck were severed all around to the bone, end quote. Oh my gosh. I say we all make an appointment with our therapist after this. Thank I'm you. I'm going to say, like, I'm sitting here grasping my like, Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, oh. oh all, making sure they stay attached. Gosh. I'm like, oh, man. goo. Like, oh, are you good, buddy?
1: Uh, no, I hate to say it that way, but I really hope she was dead before this mutilation. Agreed. like,
0: So she didn't feel anything. Oh, gosh. It's speculated that because the killer was in such a private location away from prying eyes, with no risk of being, you know, happened upon, that he was actually able to take his time and carry out his murderous compulsion to a whole new extreme. Similar to some previous victims, her organs and entrails were piled to the right of her body, but there were other lacerations and organ placements besides the typical throat cut and gutting. Mary's uterus, kidneys, and one breast were placed beneath her head. Her left lung was torn out, and her heart was missing. And again, not just from the body, but missing. The Ripper had taken flaps of skin that he had stripped from her thighs and abdomen and piled them on the bedside table. There it is. What the heck? There's the piles of meat. I mean, technically it was. I mean, it
1: was. Oh my gosh. This dude. Going beyond like a strong stomach is like, I mean, he just doesn't care. mm -hmm. I know that sounds so weird. I'm not talking about the care of actually... Fulfilling his thoughts. Right. But like the actual touching of organs and flesh. Yes. Like, I get sick when I'm having to pick, you know, like I got this blister from a burn. Right. Even just peeling it, like, I don't want to touch.
0: Ugh. Dang. Well, uh, let's just hope you don't have a full stomach for this part. Well, it's a good thing I haven't eaten today. <laughs> right. Same. <laughs> Every feature of Mary's face has been slashed her ears, her cheeks, her nose, her eyebrows all Mm. partially removed from her person, and her lips were sliced multiple times. Yep, Mm. that's the reaction. I had to. Mm. You just want to put chapstick on it and then cover
1: your face with a face mask. but But it's one of those things that, again, like I said, I hope that she was already dead before any of this started. But at the same time, in my mind, like, we know, like, for the previous ones... Because of the time crunch, you know, if yeah. it, it seemed like he had more time. It was and over it quickly. Was, yeah. And so it's pretty, I, I visualize it as, you know, okay, cut, cut, you know, remove, yeah. like, you know, but this time it's like, where do you even start? If you actually have all this time, I hope that you... Y- y- End it first. Yeah. But then, in somebody's mind... Okay, this is what I wanted to look. This is what I wanted to do. Like, how how do you get? You know what I mean? It's like, such a good
0: question. It's just it's ugh. one of those things because we'll never understand we no, ourselves yeah. not being killers. Yeah. We don't know. Yeah, it's just man. And the thing about serial killers is they all differ so greatly from one another. Aside yeah. from having a few basic past, well, things and, it, and it makes
1: me wonder too. Is it the reasons that the other women's because it's pretty much has escalated. I mean, it it was pretty much the same for the first two. Then they didn't get to finish with Elizabeth. Then Catherine was worse because he didn't get to finish and or maybe because she knew who he he was. Right. But it's like the progression, and usually that is what happens. It gets worse and worse and worse. Yeah. But it's like, was this his want from the beginning when he first killed? You know, Was he just working uh, up to this moment? Yeah. Yeah. Would theirs have been worse if he had more time? Yeah. Uh, Yeah.
0: Dr. Phillips stated with absolute confidence that her cause of death was not strangulation. It was severance of the carotid artery. Again, time of death, of course, was way harder to determine because of by the time anyone got there, it was already 1130 and then 130 after that. And the blood loss would have also thrown that off and organs missing, all of that. But Dr. Bond believed that the murder took place between 1 and 2 a.m., But based on witness testimony, Metropolitan Police believed that it took place between 3.30 and 4.00, and Dr. Phillips thought maybe even between 5.00 and 6.00. So we literally have a five-hour window for time of death here. That's a huge window. Yeah. So here's what they pieced together of Mary's last movements. It's still a pretty big mystery of what she did between Joseph leaving her at 7.45 and 11.45. But one story did have her drinking with a woman named Elizabeth Foster at the Ten Bells, which was a pub at the time but at 11, she was said to be very drunk and continuing to drink with a young and respectable-looking man that had a dark mustache at the Britannia. Her first sighting that was confirmed actually came around 11.45, though, from Mary Ann Cox, who was another sex worker, living at Miller's Court. Mary Ann was returning home to get warm for a bit and saw Mary Kelly walking ahead of of her, accompanied by a stout man. Stout, again. A gas lamp stood directly across from Mary's apartment at number 13, and it lit up Miller's court, so it was actually pretty easy to see who went and came from the apartment. Mary Ann said that the man was short, stout, with a blotchy face. He looked to be in his 30s. He had a short, carroty mustache, a billycock hat, a longish, dark, shabby coat, and a quarter pail of beer. She said that she wished them a good night as she passed by, and Mary Kelly also wished her a good night. Slurring her words and saying she was going to have a song, which was a pretty normal occurrence, when she got drunk. As Marianne went into her home, she heard Mary Kelly singing the song, A Violet from Mother's Grave. I know I have the ability to probably play that on here, but I'm not going to. It's really sad, and it's also very grainy, and it's a very old recording. Catherine Pickett and her husband, who also lived at Miller's Court, also recalled her singing around 1230 a.m. Catherine got irritated and told her husband that she wanted to go shut Mary (laughs) Kelly up, but her husband stopped her from doing that. At midnight, Mary Ann went back out into the cold to work and came back an hour later when it started to rain again. Remember, it's really cold. We're in November here. At 1 a.m., the light was still on in Mary Kelly's room and Mary Ann could still hear her singing. Mary Ann Cox went back out soon after that again. And around the same time, Elizabeth Prater was standing at the entrance of Miller's Court waiting for a man. After giving up around 1.30, Elizabeth went back to her room and passed out for the night. But she did not hear Mary singing any more, and she couldn't see any lights coming from inside her room. At 2 a.m., George Hutchinson was walking to his residence at a men's home on Commercial Street. He passed a guy standing at the corner of Commercial and Thrall, And he didn't give the guy a second glance. He just kind of kept trucking. But he soon happened upon Mary, who asked him for a sixpence. But he declined her, saying he spent all of his money. So we know that she went back out. So Mary left searching for cash and soon met with a man Hutchinson passed on the corner. That same guy. Hutchinson watched as the man put his hand on Mary's shoulder and they started walking back to Dorset Street. This gets a little creepy, but I also get it with everything happening in the area at the time. There was a parcel in the man's left hand. Hutchinson took note that the man had a pale complexion, small mustache, dark hair, bushy eyebrows. The man was wearing a a felt hat, which was pulled low, a long dark coat, and dark spats over his boots. Hutchinson said that the man had a quote-unquote Jewish appearance and he wound up following mary and the stranger back to miller's court and he stood watching as mary kissed the man and led him inside so again kind of creepy but it probably I mean, with she everything was okay. yeah yeah he stood waiting there until about 3 a.m. he was waiting for a long time but nobody came out of the room by then so he left at this time mary ann was coming home once again because the rain had again started back up <laughs> She couldn't see any light coming from the room, and as she laid awake for the next hour or so, she could hear men going in and out of the courtyard, but that doesn't mean any of them were Mary's gentleman caller. Yeah. Elizabeth Prater was woken up at 4 a.m. by her kitten, Aww. <laughs> and she heard someone cry the words, oh, murder, which was a kind of a common phrase at the time. Mm-hmm. Sarah Lewis, who was staying with friends in the neighborhood that night, also heard the same phrase at the same time. At 4 p.m. on the 9th, Mary Kelly's body was transported to Shoreditch Mortuary. The police boarded up the windows and locked the doors, because I guess that was best since, you know, it had been pickaxed. Yeah. Mary Jane Kelly was laid to rest in the Roman Catholic Cemetery of Leighton Stone. Both Joseph Barnett and John McCarthy teamed up to ensure that Mary was buried according to traditions of the Catholic Church. Oh, that's nice. Her landlord did, like, a good deed. Yeah. Usually they sound like a bunch of But it
1: sounds like, too, that she was, you know, just well-liked by so many people. That's very true. She was
0: very personable, I guess. Her death certificate did list her as Marie Jeanette Kelly, rather than Mary Jane. And that's all we have for the Canonical Five. But these women were very real. They had rough lives. But they are just as worthy of respect and just as deserving of remembrance and justice as anyone else. Yeah, for sure. I just, and it sucks because it's like you hate, their deaths weren't easy easy by
1: any means. But man, the last two, but to me it's like, like my heart kind of like breaks her like, because Mary Mary Kelly was the the youngest, like she hadn't even like really lived life, you know, like she she had a crappy background, like well that you know, or, or at least some of it, you know, yeah. her life, and like well that, and it's like but then you're the youngest, and to have all that pain, like just that mutilation, like just put upon your body, like
0: and even if she wasn't still alive when it happened, it's still like yeah,
1: oh man, it's crazy.
0: But I just want to reiterate that the reason that I wanted to do these two episodes first was because it's also a really good picture to have. It's really good to have a full picture of the murders, mm-hmm. rather than just focusing on the scumbag that did it. Because mm-hmm. then we're just glorifying Jack the Ripper yeah. as well. Yeah. We don't want to do that. No, you got
1: to you got to pay homage to the victims, because at the end of the day, you know, they they are the ones that got killed, and yeah, and, and because of you know, yes, his acts, are because of them is, is, you know, what made him so famous.
0: It's crazy. It is. But next episode, we will focus more heavily on Jack the Ripper, but that's it for this week. Do you have anything left to say, Jess?
1: No. No. I just... I'll tell you. So it's just hard to figure out because I'm not a serial killer. That's and, valid. But it's like that last one, especially, I'm just like, man, you know, can't, can't get over the where you start. How does your thoughts like get to this point? And, exactly. and when you're doing it. What actually goes through your mind? Yeah. Is it blank? You have nothing to say? Like, let me cut off this appendage. Let me cut... And I know this that they again. say like, serial oh,
0: killers no. don't typically have remorse or guilt, but are you thinking, man, I wish I couldn't be like this? What? Yeah. Like, What's on so, your mind there, buddy? Yeah. It's just... Oh, man. So, stay safe this week, guys. Always remember that there is so much more to people than what meets the eye. And just want to say it? As always, don't get haunted.